You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. If you were to drive along the southern end of Fifth Avenue in Troy, New York, you'd be hard-pressed to miss a very unusual building that is located there. Imagine for a minute a circular brick building with a 110-foot or 34-meter footprint, and it stands nearly 50 feet or 15 meters tall. At its top is a low-profile dome with a small cupola at its center. The entire structure is surrounded by two levels of very tall, narrow, double-hung windows, many of which have been either bricked over or boarded up over the years. Now, For many years, this building was quite a puzzlement to me. It seems something like a small castle, but it's immediately clear that this was not its intended purpose, particularly because this once industrialized zone is not exactly where someone would build a castle. I later learned that the reason I had no clue as to its purpose was that it was just one of 10 gas holder buildings that remained within the United States. The Troy Gas Holder Building was constructed in 1873 for the storage of just what its name implies, gas. But not just any gas, but gas derived from coal. In the days before the light bulb and electrification, gas was used to illuminate the streets of the city and of course the homes of the elite. Now to say that this building was a tank that stored coal gas would actually be incorrect. It would be more accurate to say that this is the building that surrounded and protected the internal storage tank from the elements. Made of cast iron, the tank consisted of two telescoping 22-foot or 5.7-meter cylindrical sections. As the gas was produced and pumped into the gas holder, the roof of the tank would slowly rise. Then the weight of the roof itself would provide the pressure needed to distribute the gas to the city of Troy. Now The tank is long gone, having been dismantled for scrap in the 1920s, so only the outer brick surround remains. One of the byproducts of the production of coal gas is coal tar. And we all know tar. It's been around for millions of years, but tar that was derived from coal was not discovered until around 1665. Its first practical uses were the same as regular tar. It's most likely used for waterproofing of roofs and boats and so on. But in the early 1800s, it began to be used for medicinal purposes. Now, just like many other things of its time, many of these treatments were eventually proven to be ineffective or toxic. 
but today we still use coal tar in shampoos and soaps to treat dandruff and psoriasis. In 1856, 18-year-old chemistry student William Henry Perkin was challenged by his professor to see if the anti-malarial drug quinine could be synthesized from aniline. If you don't know what aniline is, don't worry about it too much. Just be aware that it's one of the chemical components of that messy coal tar. Perkin was never able to extract the quinine he was seeking, but serendipitously he made a remarkable discovery. You see, while testing the solubility of a black precipitate that had been produced, he found that alcohol extracted a purple dye. So he named it, this is pretty obvious, aniline purple. Up until this point, similar natural purple dyes were easily bleached out by the sun. Just think of a faded old flag. And not only that, they were incredibly costly to produce. Perkins' new aniline dye was far more resistant to fading. In fact, his original silk dyed samples are just as bright today as they were the day they were produced. And more importantly, they were much cheaper to make. Perkin was awarded a patent for his discovery in August 1856 and opened his first dye works the following year. In 1859, he changed the name from aniline purple to Malvine, which is derived from Malve, the French word for the purple mallow flower. It wasn't long before other synthetic dyes were developed, and it just seemed like factories were popping up everywhere. In 1863, Friedrich Baer joined up with fellow dyer Johann Friedrich Westcott to form the company that we know as, you guessed it, Baer. Now it may be a pharmaceutical powerhouse today, but dyes were their business at the beginning. With the cost of dyes quickly plummeting, it was clear to Bayer and a number of other larger dye manufacturers that there was little room for growth or profit in such a cutthroat industry. They instinctively knew that they needed to turn their corporate attention elsewhere, but the big question was where? The answer to this question would appear in 1878. That's when Paul Ehrlich, who was working at the Berlin Medical Clinic, began using the coal tar dyes to selectively stain bacteria. Now, you may not see much promise here, but he theorized that it may be possible to use these dyes to selectively target a particular pathogen without harming the host. In other words, by finding just the right dye chemistry, it may be possible to kill a particular bacteria, but not kill you at the same time. It wasn't long after this that Bayer entered the pharmaceutical industry. In 1882, they introduced its first drug, phenacetin, which was derived from a synthetic dye byproduct. By the turn of the 20th century, it was common procedure within Bayer to test all of its chemical dyes for possible medical uses. In 1932, Bayer researcher Gerhard Dumas discovered that one of their deep red dyes prevented the growth of streptococcus bacteria in petri dishes, and even more promising, it cured mice infected with strep. Up until this point in history, there was no known treatment for strep, which was deadly to those who had been wounded in times of war. So realizing the incredible potential for the world's first antibiotic, Bayer gave it the name Prontosil 
and they immediately applied for patent protection. While Prontosil worked, in fact, its first life was saved in 1933, Bayer had absolutely no clue as to how it worked, yet they refused to provide outside researchers with samples to seek an explanation. So scientists at the Pasteur Institute in Paris opted to take advantage of an 1844 French law that forbid the patenting of pharmaceuticals, and they opted to synthesize the Prontosil themselves. They soon discovered that Prontosil itself was not providing the cure. Instead, Prontosil was metabolized in the body into a simpler compound, sulfonilamide. It was sulfonilamide which provided the curative power. Now, Bear's dream of making a vast fortune from the sale of Prontosil was quickly squashed. That's because sulfonilamide had been previously discovered and its patent had already expired. Basically, Bayer had invented something that had already been invented. What that meant was that any company was now free to produce sulfonilamide without having to pay Bayer a single dime. And very quickly, the market was flooded with competing sulfonilamide drugs. One of the many manufacturers of this miracle drug was the S.E. Massengill Company of Bristol, Tennessee. While not a powerhouse in the pharmaceutical industry in the 1930s, they did claim to be the largest drug manufacturer in the southern United States with more than 500 employees. Massengill marketed the product in two forms. There was a capsule that contained the sulfonilamide powder, and then there was a compressed tablet. In June 1937, word started to filter back from the firm's salesman that there was need for a liquid form. You know, tablets and capsules are fine for adults, but it's far easier to administer a liquid medication to children. And who gets strapped the most? Children. So they needed a liquid sulfonilamide drug. You know, conceptually, creating a liquid drug would appear simple. But there really was a good reason why no one had marketed a liquid sulfonilamide. That's because the drug was incredibly difficult to dissolve. So the seemingly impossible task of finding a solvent was assigned to Massengill chief chemist Harold Cole Watkins. And within a few weeks of testing, Watkins had established the ideal set of ingredients. And here we go. And I'm not going to put this in the metric system because it's really insignificant to the story. Just be aware this is a lot. It's a big barrel full. You take 58.5 pounds of sulfonilamide, mix in one gallon of elixir flavor, one pint of raspberry extract, one pound of saccharin soluble, one and a half pints of amaranth solution 1 16th, that's a red dye, two fluid ounces of caramel, 60 gallons of the solvent diethylene glycol, and finally you add enough water to produce 80 gallons of the solution. This finalized formula was then forwarded to Massengill's Kansas City facility for production on August 28, 1937, and shipments of the first commercial batch began on September 4th. The total time from initial formulation to shipment out to distributors was less than eight weeks. 
Massinger was certain that they had a blockbuster product on their hands. And just like today, the Massengill salesman began to provide doctors with sample bottles to give to their patients. And it was smooth sailing from Massengill until Saturday, October 9th, 1937, which just coincidentally is 80 years to the day of when I'm recording this. Anyway, on Saturday, October 9th, 1937, there was an urgent telegram delivered to the offices of the American Medical Association, you know, the AMA. In it, a group of Tulsa, Oklahoma doctors expressed their great concern over the death of six children. All had died from strep throat within the previous 10 days, exhibiting very similar symptoms. They all had lower than normal body temperatures, their respiration had slowed dramatically, and their bodies stopped producing urine before they succumbed to whatever had killed them. All six of these children had just one thing in common besides strep. They had all been prescribed Massengill's new elixir sulfanilamide. By the next day, the Tulsa death toll had risen to 10. That included two men who had been prescribed the liquid sulfanilamide to treat gonorrhea. At this point, no one was really sure what was going on. Initial observations seemed to point toward possible mercury poisoning, but it could have been the sulfanilamide, it could have been the Massengill elixir, the interaction of the elixir with other drugs, or it could have simply been coincidence. On Monday, the AMA wired Massengill to find out just what they had used to concoct their elixir. Massengill's response must have sent shivers down the spines of the experts at the AMA. While not widely known at the time, Research had recently been published that the solvent that they used to formulate that elixir, that's the 60 gallons of diethylene glycol, it had been found to not only cause significant kidney damage, but it could possibly be fatal to anyone who ingested it. Even worse, there was no known antidote or treatment for diethylene glycol poisoning, and it was later determined that consuming as little as one ounce could prove fatal. Now, just to give you an idea how deadly this can be, today diethylene glycol is used as a component in dyes, lubricants, brake fluid, wallpaper stripper, and many other products. In the past, it's also been an ingredient in antifreeze. On Thursday, the Federal Food and Drug Administration, that's the FDA, was alerted to the potential problem, but I think you'd be shocked to find out that they were powerless to do anything about it. That's because the Food and Drugs Act of 1906, which regulated the manufacturing of pharmaceuticals in the U.S. at the time, did not require manufacturers to test medicines for safety prior to placing them on the market. Prior to releasing the product to the public, Massengill had tested the elixir for appearance, taste, and fragrance, but amazingly, they never bothered to evaluate its effect on living things. They never tested it on a mouse, a guinea pig, or a human being. And what's even more amazing is they had no obligation to do so. It wasn't against the law. The FDA had no choice but to use the seemingly trivial reason of product mislabeling to seize the product. So let me tell you how it was mislabeled. First, the product was misbranded as elixir sulfanilamide. It turns out that elixirs at the time were understood to contain 
alcohol as a solvent, but of course the Massengill product had none. Second, the label indicated that the bottles contained quality pharmaceuticals, but people were dying, so clearly that wasn't the case. And lastly, Massengill listed their address as Bristol, Tennessee. That was their headquarters, but the product had been produced in Kansas City. Just as we would expect as a response from most companies today, Massengill initially denied that their product could be the cause of the deaths. Yet, the company opted to cooperate with the government and help get all of the elixir back. Shipment of the medication ended on Friday, October 15th. Keep in mind that the first notification to the AMA was on the 9th. So shipment ended on the 15th, and Massengill sent out 1,100 telegrams to recall the product. To its salesman, the message read, quote, Elixir sulfonylamide discontinued. Pick up as rapidly as possible all sold in your territory. Now, the telegrams to its customers were far less urgent. Quote, Do not use elixir sulfonylamide shipped. Return our expense. That's it. This didn't satisfy a federal inspector in Bristol, and he demanded that a more urgent message be sent to all of those who received shipment. Quote, Imperative you take up immediately all elixir sulfonylamide you may have dispensed. Product may be dangerous to life. Return our expense. In the short time that the product had been on the market, it had been shipped to 31 states and Puerto Rico. Keep in mind that in 1937, a large portion of the southern U.S. still lacked electrification, so many people didn't own radios. The only real way to grab the attention of such a large populace was via the newspapers. But it turns out that many of them initially buried this story deep within their pages. The FDA dispatched nearly their entire staff of 239 field inspectors and chemists out to hunt down every last ounce of the elixir. Now this was far easier said than done. While we think of prescriptions today as being quite controlled and well-documented, this was far from the case in 1937. In many cases, there was no prescription at all. No records were kept. Then there was one pharmacy that just recorded first names, like Betty Jean, nine months old, and nothing more. It was also suspected that some had used fictitious names to avoid the social consequences of having gonorrhea. So FDA agents did their best detective work as they traveled up and down, back and forth on the back roads of the southern U.S. in search of the liquid sulfonylamide. Sadly, while the hunt was on, the death toll continued to rise. On Friday, October 22nd, the press reported that a total of 22 people had died from the elixir. Mount Olive, Mississippi Dr. Archie Calhoun was so distraught by the news that he drove that evening to the home of every patient that he prescribed the medicine to. Sadly, six of his patients succumbed to the poisonous medicine. He said, quote, Nobody but Almighty God and I can know what I have been through in these past few days. He continued, But to realize that six human beings, all of them my patients, one of them, my best friend, are dead because they took medicine that I prescribed for them innocently. 
and to realize that the medicine that I have used for years in such cases suddenly had become a deadly poison in its newest and most modern form, as recommended by a great and reputable pharmaceutical firm in Tennessee, well, that realization has given me such days and nights of mental and spiritual agony as I did not believe a human being could undergo and survive. I have spent hours on my knees once I had done all any physician could do for his patients. I have known many hours when death for me would be a welcome relief from this agony. And that's the end of the quote. On Monday, it was announced that nearly all the bottles of the elixir had been collected. The death toll now stood at 41 nationwide and it continued to rise. Now, while the medicine was out of the hands of the public, patients were still suffering the consequences of its consumption. In addition, doctors were now going back and examining the records of the deceased to determine who else may have died from it. What I found interesting was that as many as 75% of those who consumed the elixir didn't die from its consumption. Now, some made a total recovery. Others stopped taking it once they noticed it didn't agree with their systems. But most surprisingly was that many suffered no side effects at all. They went through a full course of the medication and nothing happened to them. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. I can keep boring you with day-to-day updates, so let me just jump to the end of this entire mess and tell you how it turned out. Unfortunately, I have to give you some numbers, so hopefully that's not too tedious. Here are the stats on the recall. 240 gallons, which is about 908 liters of the elixir have been manufactured and 95% was returned to Massengill or seized by the FDA. 399 people were exposed to the elixir and it caused 105 confirmed or probable deaths in 14 states. 105 people died as a result. Mississippi suffered the greatest loss with 25 deaths, and that was followed by Georgia with 13. But the worst thing, the worst according to my account, was that 37 of the victims were under the age of 18. The youngest was 6 months old, and the oldest victim was 77 years of age. Samuel Evans Massengill, he was the founder and president of the company. He was arrested on June 13, 1938 and charged with 259 violations of the 1906 Food and Drugs Act. All of the charges were related to the interstate shipment of a misbranded and adulterated elixir. If he was found guilty, Massengill faced a maximum sentence of 261 years in prison and a fine of $261,000. That would be about $4.5 million today. He posted $25,000 for bail, and he was immediately released. On October 3rd, Massengill agreed to plead guilty to 112 of the counts in Greenville, Tennessee. This was followed by a similar plea of 62 counts in Kansas City. 
he was fined $150 for each violation, or $26,100 in total. That'd be about $450,000 today. He served absolutely no jail time. You know, for a man who's worth an estimated $11 million in 1937, this penalty seems fairly insignificant. One would think that all the lawsuits against the company would have brought it very close to bankruptcy, but that was not the case. Only six of all the deaths resulted in a civil suit. Now, it is unknown how many cases were settled before they ever reached the courtroom, but it's believed that all the settlements were for somewhere between $300 and $3,000. That would be somewhere between $5,200 and $52,000 today, although I should mention that the $300 low end was unusual. Uh, most of the cases that I saw were somewhere between $1,000 and $1,500 in settlement. The S.E. Massingill Company did experience a decline in sales during the year of the sulfonilamide fiasco, yet somehow the company still managed to squeak out a modest profit. Well, Massingill's chief chemist, that's Harold Cole Watkins, you know, the man who formulated the toxic elixir, he was never charged with any crime, but apparently he was unable to live with the guilt of what had happened. Watkins was found dead at age 58 in his kitchen on January 17th of 1939. He had shot himself in the heart with a 38 caliber automatic pistol. Congress had been debating for years as to the pros and cons of creating stricter pharmaceutical laws, but they took no action. Even FDR, you know, President Roosevelt, he was ambivalent to changing the laws at the time. But the shocking number of deaths from the elixir finally forced them to take action. On June 15, 1938, both houses of Congress approved legislation that required manufacturers to thoroughly test and prove that their drugs are safe before they can release them to the public. The FDA finally had the teeth that it needed to prevent something like the elixir sulfonilamide poisoning from ever happening again. Many credit this legislation with giving Dr. Frances Oldham, during her first month at the FDA, the power to keep thalidomide off the market in the United States, and that helped to avoid the medical tragedy that occurred in Europe during the early 1960s. As hard as it is to believe, diethylene glycol-tainted products continue to cause problems, and that's mainly because it's a cheap substitute for safe pharmaceutical solvents. In the 1990s, hundreds of children lost their lives in Nigeria, Bangladesh, Argentina, and Haiti due to its use in over-the-counter medications. And while no one was injured, millions of tubes of diethylene glycol adulterated toothpaste were made in China and distributed worldwide in 2007. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. Millions of women have the problem. What can help? Haven't you heard? For feminine itching and irritation, there's new Massengill medicated disposable douche. Hey, that's great news. It's the first disposable with this effective medicine for temporary relief of minor feminine itching and irritation. Sanitary, too, because it's disposable. And Massengill's a name you can trust. For temporary relief of minor feminine itching and irritation, new Massengill medicated disposable douche. It works. That is the audio for a 1981 Massengill television ad. When I was a kid, it seemed like those ads were everywhere on TV, but I really had no clue what the product was used for. I just love how she says, Massengill is a name you can trust. Boy, does time forget.
When 75-year-old Samuel Evans Massengill died on December 15, 1946, his company still marketed 939 pharmaceutical products, but that number quickly dropped off. By the time of the late 1960s, the company was almost solely focused on a successful line of feminine hygiene products, just like the one you just heard. Massengill was sold to Beecham in 1971 for $54.5 million, and today it is a division of prestige brands, and they are the makers of Chloroseptic, Dramamine, Murine, Efferdent, and just so many other household brands that you know so well. So here's a question for you, and I hope that it's an easy one. Since the main story is about an untested drug and its consequences, can you name the most used drug today? I'll let you think about that for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. In other news, here are a few stories that all have to do with body parts. On April 7, 1949, Dr. George W. Hahn addressed a conference of approximately 4,000 dentists in Los Angeles with a dire warning. He said the laziness of modern mothers was causing their babies to get facial deformities and they'll grow up to look like Bugs Bunny. Yeah, he really said that. Basically, he concluded that moms were pushing off their children's feeding schedules, which was causing their teeth to protrude and were ultimately distorting their facial features. Quote, like any other mammal, a child wants to nurse his mother when hungry. If he can't nurse his mother, he sucks his thumb. Besides returning to a more normal feeding schedule, he also recommended outfitting your child with a pair of mittens made of coarse Turkish toweling to reduce that evil thumb sucking. Uh, what is up, Monsieur Le Physician? In March of 1957, Terry Phillips appeared on the British television show State Your Case. She competed against two other contestants as to who was most in need of the 100-pound prize. That's about $2,400 today. After the show, viewers mailed in their selection and Mrs. Phillips had won. She convinced the viewing audience that her nose was far too oversized and needed to be reduced. After winning the prize, her eight-year-old daughter Shirley was upset and said, quote, Mommy, don't have your nose cut off. Her husband Bill agreed, so Terry decided to skip the surgery, and she donated the money to four different charities. Bill said, quote, We're all pleased she changed her mind. We've got sort of used to her nose over the years. <laughs> and lastly... An Associated Press story from August 31, 1964, discussed the findings of a study done by Dr. Erwin O. Strassman. He was a clinical professor at Baylor University College of Medicine in Texas. In what I consider to be purely junk science, Dr. Strassman found that in a study of 717 childless women, there was a definite correlation between breast size and intelligence. Quote, the bigger the brain, the smaller the breasts, and vice versa. The bigger the breasts, the smaller the IQ. His results were published under the title Physique, Temperament, and Intelligence in Infertile Women in the International Journal of Fertility. I guess as they always say, don't believe everything that you read. So, did you come up with a possible answer as to what the most used drug today is?
Well, the answer is aspirin. Now, exact numbers are hard to come by, but Wikipedia estimates that the annual global use is between 50 and 120 billion pills annually. It had been known since the days of the ancient Egyptians that willow bark could be used to treat fever and pain, but it wasn't until 1828 that German pharmacy professor Joseph Buckner was able to extract the active ingredient. He called it salicin. Two years later, salicin was also isolated in the Meadow Street flower, which at the time was classified as being part of the plant genus Spirea. Now I'll keep that in mind for the naming in a bit. Salicylic acid was first synthesized by Herman Colby in 1874, but he found that large doses caused nausea and vomiting, sometimes even coma. When the official history of aspirin was published in Germany in 1934, it claimed that in 1897, Bayer chemist Felix Hoffmann was seeking a medicine to treat his father's rheumatism, and he turned his attention to the salicylic acid. He found that by adding an acetyl group to the salicylic acid, that acetyl salicylic acid was produced and the side effects were greatly reduced. They were buffered. But it has since been determined that this story wasn't really true. While Hoffman did do the experimentation, it was done under the direction of former colleague Arthur Eigengrun. Since Eigengrun was Jewish, Nazi policy forbid that he receive any credit for it. In fact, Eigengrun was placed in a concentration camp in 1937, and he was released at the end of the war. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The one thing that is certain is that Eigengrun did name the product aspirin. The letter A stands for the acetyl group, the spur is from the plant genus Berea, and the in was just a common suffix that people used for drugs in the late 1800s. Bayer applied for a patent, and of course it quickly became one of the most popular drugs in the world. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I have to admit, I've been researching the story on and off for, I don't know, maybe six, eight months now, and it was quite difficult to bring it all together but I did find it to be quite an eye-opener. Maybe you did also. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast using your favorite podcast application, whether it's iTunes or whatever, and then you'll be sure to receive future episodes as soon as they come out. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. 
and we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that because you're already listening to a podcast.